Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. What did the grape say when the elephant stepped on him? He just let out a little whine. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, an hour of culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. Except this week, it's an hour of food, food, and food, yes. because this is our annual all-food episode, a calorie-laden holiday feasting special comprised of our finest food-related stories. Which explains that joke from celebrated restaurant critic and food writer Ruth Reichel. Coming up, award-winning chef Gabrielle Hamilton talks Triscuits, musician Beth Ditto fixes a mashed potato mess, and Taiwanese food mogul Eddie Huang makes you think twice about mac and cheese. Plus, we spend an afternoon with Marlon Brando, Ileana Douglas, and a whole lot of room service. Oh my. But first, we're going to take you back in time. Yes, it was 2009, this show was just a few episodes old, when we caught wind of something brewing on a relatively new social media website called Twitter. It's a popular tool of some leaders these days, yes. but yes... The guys behind a Los Angeles food truck called Kogi were using Twitter to tell people where their truck was parked, and people would race over by the hundreds to chow down on Kogi's specialty, Korean barbecue tacos. Now, of course, today this wouldn't even be a story, but back then, all of this was new. Upscale food trucks, ethnic fusion foods, using Twitter as an advertising platform. So Brendan visited the truck one night to check out the scene. What are you guys eating? Uh, I'm eating a, uh, the Kogi, the... Korean beef taco. It's so good that I forgot what it was called, you know. I'm Korean and I love Mexican food, so this is perfect for me. I was kind of worried at first because I thought it might just be like Korean food in tortillas. And I was like, eh. But then I tasted it and it's like way more. It's like way good. I was just walking down the street and I saw a long line for a taco truck, which is something you don't see very often. And I asked somebody in line, what would this many people stand in line for? And he said, Korean barbecue and it will change your life. Can I get your uh, full name? Uh, Mark Mangara. What is your title here at Koji? Oh boy, I guess I'm the founding father of Koji. And when did you find it? I was out with my sister-in-law. We went out, of course we got drunk and everything. We came home and I live in Korea. I'm Filipino and I'm married into a Korean family. Oh, okay. So I said, wouldn't it be great if someone put Korean barbecue, meat, and a warm corn tortilla? It's outrageous. It's so simple, but it, it's mind-blowing. You're absolutely right. It's, it's a perfect marriage of the society that we live in every single day. We live in a Latino, Hispanic community. And Korean barbecue and Korean food is so unplayed right now. Everyone knows Japanese food as teriyaki. Everyone knows Chinese food as sweet and sour pork. But no one knows Korean barbecue. People who don't understand Korean barbecue, can you just describe to them what makes it special? Korean barbecue is basically a, a simple marinade of soy sauce, ginger, scallions, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of all these Asian basic ingredients marinated for 20 40 40 hours cooked on a grill it's a done deal hey thanks so much yeah, for chatting with me of course my pleasure what are you guys eating over there i think i'm eating a chicken taco what do you think about the prices well i mean after they make you wait an hour you're willing to pay just about everything <laughs> well you figure probably two blocks that way crack is five dollars <laughs> two dollars for a beef taco is not so bad but my new fix is beef tacos that was Brendan back in 2009 speaking with Mark Mangara, owner and founder of the groundbreaking Kogi food truck. And of course, Kogi's chef, Roy Choi, has gone on to become one of the biggest star chefs in California and the country. That's right. And even back then, we were pretty sure he was going to be huge. Here's the recorded evidence. This is Brendan chowing down on a Kogi taco for the first time. Rico, I'm eating this thing right now. <clears throat> I, feel like, I feel like I'm eating ambrosia. 
I think I think if um, you were to tackle Aphrodite and uh, bite her leg, it would taste like this. I feel like I'm climbing into a warm clawfoot tub with bubble bath, and um, I'm watching. I'm have my laptop open. I'm watching all this money fill my bank account. Oh my god. That was a powerful moment. It certainly was. Uh, you're listening to the Dinner Party Downloads annual all-food episode, folks. And now it's time for our weekly Dinner Party soundtrack, in which a great musician presents you with songs to eat by. Yes, and here to play DJ is singer and feminist icon Beth Ditto. For seven years, she fronted the indie rock band Gossip. Critics compare her soul-punk vocals to Janis Joplin's. And she recently debuted her first solo album, called, appropriately for this food show, Fake Sugar. Oh, that's true. Here she is with a playlist and to declare the proper way to serve potatoes. Hello, everybody. My name is Beth Ditto, and you are listening to my dinner party soundtrack. And the dinner party that we're going to be having tonight is just your regular run-of-the-mill potluck. There are going to be some vegetarians and vegans. If you could be sensitive to that, that'd be incredible. Thank you. This is my delicious dinner party soundtrack, my DPS. So the first song we're going to listen to today, I think, is the perfect setting for relaxation. It is called um, I've Been Thinking About by Handsome Boy Modeling School featuring Cat Power. Be my boy, be my boy, be my boy, be my boy. People usually would associate Cat Power with singer-songwriter indie rock. You don't really usually hear her in thick electronic music or hip-hop. And it kind of goes to show that she's so versatile. She's very timeless. Like, I feel like her records could be made yesterday. Diamonds, candy pills, one million dollar bills. You can't try, but you can't buy me, buy me. You know what's happening at this dinner party right now? I'm a little bit mad because two people bought mashed potatoes, but I'm not kidding you. Nobody brought gravy. Get out of here with that. It's like, oh, I brought grits, but no salt or cheese or sugar. You're like, oh, good. So we just have some white paste. Great. That's okay because I got some Weiler's bouillon cubes. And I'm just about to mix that up with some flour and some butter. And we're going to make a little bit of a roux. And we're just going to do some impromptu gravy. And that's going to be fine. I'm not mad at anybody. I just think it was a little bit irresponsible and inconsiderate. The next song that we have is a delicious little tune. This is Nina Simone covering Suzanne, written by Leonard Cohen, of course. Suzanne takes you down to a place by the river. Nina Simone is very special for me. I think she's just special anyway. The first time I heard her, I think that I was listening to Four Women, yeah? And actually, it was my wife now who I was listening to it with. It just blew my mind. Oh, you touched her perfect body with your mind, yeah. There is no bad cover of this song, and I don't think Nina Simone has ever done a bad cover. Like, she could cover anything and make it sound so sophisticated and so rich. And on the surface, it's deceptively simple, and then when you listen to it, it's moving and complicated. She's on another level, I think, that other musicians just, they weren't. Let's see here, while I'm getting this a-cooking and a-going, which is ridiculous, because now that I look at it, the dinner party's almost over, and I'm finally making this gravy, thanks for nothing to the two mashed potato folks. 
But that's okay. I'm going to put this song on for you now. It's called um, After Hours by Velvet Underground's Mo Tucker. And I don't think there's any better way for people to get the hint. One, two, three. If you close the door, the night could last forever. The drinks are being served. The dessert is coming out. So just take a listen and be entranced by her sweet little voice. All the people are dancing and they're having such fun. I wish it could happen to me. It's a Velvet Underground song that Mo Tucker did, which is cute because she was the drummer. It's very charming, but also because Mo Tucker was such a cool badass. One of her, I think there's like something that she says that's roughly like, I hated all that peace and love When she was talking about the hippie movement. You would never know that she actually thinks that way with how sweet and innocent the song sounds. You're my very special one. But if you close the door, I'd never have to see the day again. I think this song is really special to me. I remember because I wasn't that hip in high school, so I discovered a lot of things in my 20s and touring and like going on tour with different bands. And sometimes you'd switch mix CDs. So I remember this song was on somebody's mix and just being like, this is the original twee. Oh, but people look well in the dark. This song is really important to me because it makes me think, you know what, twee has a place. And for so long I railed against it. When I heard this song, I was like, you know what? Twee in its truest, purest form is actually incredible. And to me, this is the godfather of Twee. I never have to see the day again. Now it's dessert time. And um, since it's dessert, don't worry about it. Guilt-free, am I right, ladies? It is sugar-free. And this song is by yours truly, Dare I Cringe. It is called Fake Sugar, and it's from the record that I just made. I get so sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. It's a song that is heavily inspired by Paul Simon and really pretty jangly guitars. I hope you enjoy it. And I also hope that if you brought a dish, take it with you. Because I'm going to take it to Goodwill in one week. Because that's on you. That's on you. Dinner Party soundtrack from Beth Ditto. Her new solo album is called Fake Sugar. It's really good. And by the way, you will also find Beth's party advice alongside that of many other fine DPD guests in the pages of our new book entitled Brunch is Hell, How to Save the World by Throwing a Dinner Party. Yes, in which we give you a crash course in party throwing, including song picks from the likes of Slater Kinney, Thundercat, Zoe Deschanel, and many more. You'll have no excuse for lame playlists again. (laughs) Head to our site for details or to brunchishell.com. Please do. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But coming up, Anthony Bourdain tells you how to behave. And Brendan experiences the pleasures and pain of horseradish. Mm, When this all-food episode of the Dinner Party Download continues.
Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and today we are focusing on the food part of that equation because this is our annual all-food episode. In a few minutes, Anthony Bourdain tells you how to make a dinner party host hate you. Eddie Huang grapples with mac and cheese, and Brendan gets attacked by a horseradish. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And it's Gabrielle Hamilton. She is the chef and owner of Prune. For 15 years, one of the most celebrated and idiosyncratic restaurants in New York City. Her best-selling memoir, Blood, Bones, and Butter, won a James Beard Award for Best Food Writing. And in 2015, Rico talked to her about her new cookbook, The New Prune. That's correct. It contains annotated versions of the recipes she gives her line cooks. I started by asking Gabrielle about the first one, canned sardines on Triscuit crackers. The main instruction being to avoid arranging the sardines on the plate in a, quote, restauranty way. It's funny because it's not an irony at all. I don't have an ironic bone in my body. I'm yeah. cynical and jaded, yes, in certain <laughs> ways, but um, I'm kind of last of the earnest people. And that recipe, if you want to call it that, open a can of sardines. I lived on sardines through some very starving times. I was in New York City. I was living out of a jar of change. I was 16 years old, and that was 35 cents at the bodega. So it means a lot to me, and now I find it very delicious, and it's the greatest source of protein. So, yeah, it's not a joke. It's not um, an affectation, like PBR, that kind of thing (laughs) that people do. The, The other thing is... I'm trying not to have a restauranty restaurant, so I often have to ask the cooks to make the food look normal and not gaspable. I don't want well, the food to go down and you have to sort of stop your conversation for 15 minutes to admire what I've done. I just want the food to look good enough that it's appetizing and appealing and no more. Not intrusive. I First of all, I agree with all of that, and I'm sincere in saying that I really want to eat it right now. After <laughs> You're <having>. earnest, too. <laughs> I'm absolutely earnest about sardines, as anyone who's heard this show knows. But this recipe does call into question the idea of what makes something fine dining. What, in your opinion, is the key? What separates this from, you know, what you would do at home? Well, you know for sure that Prune has no ambition toward fine dining and couldn't possibly be categorized as fine dining. We have wobbly tables and all the coffee cups are chipped. We are excellent dining and delicious dining, Uh but we are not fine dining. But if you dig into that book and if you come to Prune, you know that we also do things that are 37 steps long. And oh, yeah. not everything is just popping open again. <laughs> For sure. Well, this is... But the food at Prune is very personal. And it's food that I know very intimately from a lifetime of being up close to it or having eaten it in an originating source. I don't make anything on the menu sort of um, learned in a stainless steel kitchen or mm-hmm. um conceived in a dream. <laughs> if I'm wanna... roasting lamb, it's because we grew up roasting lamb. If I'm opening a can of sardines, because I survived on sardines. The restaurant in the book is kind of, it's you. It's really your personality and the things that you like. To what extent were you surprised at the success of Prune? Does it surprise you that there are so many people that are willing to follow you on that ride? Eventually, that became normal to me. But of course, in the beginning, I was very shocked and surprised when anyone <laughs> walked in the door. And I would always light up with confusion, like, wow, what are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Did you find anything in common with those people beyond food taste? Well, I think that's actually what happens. I mean, I'm not even sure Prune's really a restaurant. It's really just a litmus test. (laughs) 
of a universe that do we all want to live in this particular universe? Interesting. It's like a community builder. Yes. In a strange way and a very disparate way. It always amazes me when I look out at the dining room and I see an over 70-year-old couple, highly polished and groomed on their way, you know, to the theater. And sitting next to them is some pierced and tattooed lesbian couple with blue hair and body odor <laughs> what is your food the only thing that unites those two people do you think there's some gestalt in there i have never been able to name it it's sort of the x factor of restaurant success you can have the right food the right lighting the pretty girl at the door you can have the good wine list etc and you can just tank but um mm. there's that little intangible i don't know what it is but we're 15 years old it's in prune you mentioned that you've been around for 15 years and increasingly something I've been thinking about, especially lately in New York City, so many bastions and standbys have been closing. What keeps Prune open? Yeah, 15 years. It's like 244 yeah. in restaurant years, I guess. Increasingly, it's probably more. Yeah. Um, we're small and we're consistent. I think if you have looked at the cookbook, it could be said that I'm a little scolding <laughs> in the instructions, that there's a lot of... Um, admonishments. I think that's another word that's been used if you look at my comments in the book. But um, that's true. inconsistency is, in fact, the surest death knell of a restaurant. I think you can be consistently terrible and stay in business mm. sooner than you can be inconsistent in your quality. So the whole point of haranguing line cooks is because I need the girl who cooks it on Friday to cook it the same as the guy who cooks it on Tuesday. All those recipes are written in a way to keep the product exactly like what we want it, year in, year out. That kind of answers a paradox that I saw in some of these recipes, too. There's, you know, the second recipe in this book is basically radishes with butter and salt. But it is extremely, you say, first of all, that you've seen some of those go out in a way that you don't like the way it looks. Even though it's radishes with butter and salt, that's basically all it is. It's very unfussy food in some ways that is prepared exceedingly fussily. I know. It's only three ingredients, but I want my radish quite crisp with burn. And I want my butter cool and waxy. And I want the salt on there at the end to bring back the kind of flame from the radish that the butter tamped down in a way, sort of tamed. I can tell you, you know, this is why you won a James Beard Award for writing as well. I, can, I would not have ever used the word flame to describe a radish. To me, it's like a cooling disc of refreshment. Oh, you're eating the wrong radishes. <laughs> there you go. should be eating a prune more often. Um, you were known for a long time for helping to popularize bone marrow as a dish. My understanding is one of the reasons that you got into bone marrow in the first place was practical. It's cheap. You could sell it expensively and kind of underwrite a cheaper, say, steak on the menu or something like that. It's true. The poor marrow bone, which my butcher used to give to me for free, now is, I don't know, three twenty-five a pound or something like that. This whole nose-to-tail eating fiendishness, this, this trend... <laughs> is so funny because I think now it's become nose and tail only. And I'm like, whatever happened to the pork chop? What, yeah. the, poor, the poor loin has been left behind. Sure, give me a filet, for God's sake. <laughs> but I guess my question is, what is the next bone marrow, the cheap, underused ingredient that's also excellent? Well, if you just leaf through the garbage section of the cookbook, the things um, sure. that usually get thrown away, you're going to start to throw away the sardine just to get the skeleton, just to have the spine so you can deep fry it. I mean, I'm not really predicting a new trend. I'm just making a joke. But sometimes the thing that you were to throw away, it becomes the thing you most desire. 
Gabrielle Hamilton, owner of the New York City restaurant Prune. Her cookbook is called The New Prune. Gabrielle's also a food columnist for the New York Times magazine. She recently contributed to their special dinner party issue, and so did we. That is true. I can't believe it, but it is true. You know, we pitched in a few tips for successful party conversation, all of which you will find in our new book, Brunch is Hell, How to Save the World by Throwing a Dinner Party. It's out December 5th, and you can pre-order it wherever books are sold. And now, time to eavesdrop. Eddie Wong is the restaurateur behind New York's popular bun shop, Bauhaus, and he hosts the vice show, Wong's World. A few years back, he released a memoir entitled Fresh Off the Boat, which is now a hit ABC sitcom. Today, we overhear a tale from the book. Yo, what up? This your boy, Eddie Wong. My book, Fresh Off the Boat, drops January 29th, so go support Chinese, Taiwanese, American business. Thank you very much. This chapter is about the first time a white kid invited me to stay over at his crib. I had to ask my mom for permission to go over to Jeff's house. What do his parents do? Doctors. What kind? Uh, anesthetic? I have not heard of this. Jeff says he gives shots to people so they fall asleep before surgery. After calling several of her sisters and friends, she figured it was a good job and improved. Okay, good job. You make a good friend. My mom was pretty proud of herself. Her plan to have me rub elbows with the children of rich kids was working. When the day finally came, my mom dropped me off. Hi, I'm Jessica. Are you Jeff's mom? Yes, I'm Mrs. Miller, and you must be Eddie. It's so nice to meet you. Jeff talks about you every day. Hey, Jeff. Hey, man. Jeff, go on ahead and take Eddie upstairs. You boys can play video games. We ran upstairs, but I could hear my mom from downstairs. Thank you so much for having Eddie over. He says your husband is a, uh, anesthetics. You must mean anesthesiologist. Yes, yes. He gives the shot, right? Well, yeah. He gives people shots or treatment before they go into surgery. Ah. Like the Novocaine. I get it all the time at the dentist. That's fantastic. Great. Well, I will see you tomorrow. We pick up Eddie around three. I walked up to Jeff's room. I couldn't believe my eyes. Toys, games, huge televisions, stuffed animals. It's like living in a Toys R Us. I remember thinking to myself that if I died, I wanted to come back a white man. I literally rolled around in video games, looked at all the GamePro magazines, and then went to the bathroom and wiped with their fancy toilet paper just to see how it felt. When you washed your hands, they had hand towels, so you didn't have to wipe your face with the towel your brother wiped his with 10 minutes ago. I felt like some wild gremlin child living in Chinese hell after going to their house. By that point, I was ready to convert. But then dinner happened. Jeff's mom came out of the kitchen with two bowls. One bowl was filled with goopy orange stuff. I thought they might be little boiled intestines in an orange sauce, which I could get down with. But on closer inspection, they were unlike any intestines I'd ever seen. The other bowl was gray and filled with a fibrous material mixed with bits of celery. I thought to myself, these white people really like mushy food. Jeff started wiping the gray stuff on the bread. (laughs) Jeff and his brothers couldn't get enough, but I was scared. Holy that smell. I took a deep breath, clutched my orange juice, and forced myself to take a bite. Right on cue, gag reflex, boom, went to orange juice. I couldn't hide it anymore. What is that, man? You never had tuna fish sandwiches? No, never. Where'd you get it? At the grocery store. You want to see the can? Okay, but what's the orange stuff? Macaroni and cheese. It's pasta. I didn't know what pasta was, but was really starting to feel like a dumbass, so I didn't ask. That stuff was so nasty. We never ate cheese and it stunk like feet. I suddenly realized that converting to white wouldn't be so easy. 
But still, that toilet paper was like silk. I tried to force myself to eat the macaroni and cheese. It came through my nose. I realized no matter how many toys they had, I couldn't cross over. I'd much rather eat Chinese food and split the one good dinosaur with my brother. Macaroni is to Chinamen as water is to gremlins, teeth are to soup, and Asian is to American. It just didn't fit. Eddie Wong, reading from his memoir, Fresh Off the Boat. He's since put out another book called Double Cup Love. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media, where we'll never look at a box of mac and cheese the same way again. All right, and now on this all-food episode, we present you with another entree. That is correct. So, Rico, every Passover, a man wearing a gas mask appears on a sidewalk in Manhattan's Lower East Side and starts spraying the neighborhood with toxic fumes. This is supposed to be a food show, not like the horror nightmare show. All right, stick with me. Stick with me here. (laughs) On Passover, Jews are required to eat bitter herbs, yes? As a half-Jew, I'm well aware of that, yes. You're half aware of that. Anyway, (laughs) horseradish is the most common bitter herb. So in the run-up to Passover, a traditional pickle shop called, what else, the Pickle Guys, starts grinding horseradish right in front of their shop. A while back, I stopped by to chat with Alan Kaufman, the store's owner, and I started by asking, what is horseradish anyway? Horseradish is a root. It sort of grows in the ground like a carrot. And with the Jewish religion, it's a bitter herb. We use it for Passover to... uh, shed tears for the suffering for the Jews when we left Egypt. When you're getting horseradish, is there anything you look for? Well, when we buy our horseradish, we try to find the biggest and fattest roots. Try to find them with green tops on top, not dried off so the green is nice and fresh so you know it wasn't laying around anywhere. And most of the time it always has a little bit of mud around it so we know it's freshly picked. It's the dirt that makes it... Well, that way, you know, if it's dry and it's there's no dirt or mud on there, you know it's been sitting around for a while. We want the hottest, so we go for the, the fresh ground. So the fresh stuff gives you the most heat? Yes, yes, yes. We get our horseradish from St. Louis, Missouri. Why, is that especially good horseradish? Or? That's the best horseradish you get. It's the horseradish that comes from uh, Mississippi or Missouri because it's grown in the Mississippi River, right by the mud. So it's the best horseradish you can get. So horseradish is like mud. Yeah, it likes mud, yes. It likes that moisture. So you're, you're the pickle guys, and behind you are barrels and barrels of great pickled things. Why horseradish and pickles? The old-timers that started it in 1910, they would fill in, I guess, uh, with horseradish, because at that time they only had like three or four barrels of, of items. Uh, today we got about 35 different types of uh, barrels here. So in the, in the holiday time they would make Russell Borscht, which is what we also do, and then they would make, they'd make the horseradish for Passover. So people don't have to go in their house, grate the horseradish, and make everybody in the house cry. Horseradish. 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 You want to try a piece? There you go. Tell us what you think. Damn. Horseradish. That'll clear your sinuses, won't it? Damn sure will. (laughs) So, So do a lot of people come up and ask for samples? Yeah, a lot of people. A lot of people don't believe it's hot, and then when they eat, it, they go, "Wow, that's hot!" So tell me what's going on here. We got so we got right now. Chris is going to grind up some horseradish. We have some peeled, cleaned horseradish roots. He's going to put it into a horseradish grinder, and it's going to grate the horseradish very fine. I guess would be the only word. And is this specifically made for grinding horseradish? This is actually made for grinding cheese. Now Chris has a gas mask on. Is that because he's a psychopath, or because that <laughs> he's a little psycho anyway? He's going to grate horseradish for 10 hours a day for two weeks straight. And, you know, 
It's the only way to keep him sane from not running up and down the block and ripping his clothes off. Uh, is this going to make me cry? You bet it is. Chris, is this going to make me cry? Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. It smells good. Yeah, now take a whiff. Take a whiff of that. Woo! Oh, there we go. Oh. See? Yeah, it's working, huh? Now you know why we isn't the answer there. It was like uh, World War One in the trenches there. That's right, mustard gas. All right, so he's got a bowl of it here, and it looks like Parmesan cheese, but it's moist. And now he, now you're putting it into, what's going on here? He's going to put it into a, a, another bucket. Uh -huh. That's our, the bucket we mix it in. He's going to add white vinegar to actually, it's apple cider vinegar for, for pasta. We use apple cider vinegar. And then he's going to mix it up until it's a, sort of like a mashed potato consistency. And then he's going to put them in jars, bottle them in jars. So the apple cider vinegar, because that's kosher? Kosher for pesto. Apple cider vinegar is kosher for pesto. If you're going to make it all year round, you use just regular white distilled okay. vinegar. And isn't this whole process like rabbinically supervised? Every, everything here is uh, under the supervision of Rabbi Shmuel Fischelis. He comes here at least twice a week to check on everything. Does he wear a gas mask? He doesn't wear a gas mask, but he doesn't stay long. <laughs> We chase him out with the gate with the horseradish. All right, so then, so you put it in there, and how long does it sit inside the... It can stay in that jar to four to six months and still have a lot of heat. And they add either beet juice to it to make it red horseradish, or we use apple cider vinegar to make it white horseradish. Is there going to be a flavor difference with uh, between the red and white? Yes, the red will be a little sweeter. Most people use red horseradish for gefilte fish, because that way you can see how much horseradish you put on the gefilte fish. Interesting. If you use the white, you really can't tell. Are you tired of horseradish? Like, by the end of this season, do you not touch it for another year? The fresh ground, we only make once a year, and every year I look forward to making it, and every year when I start making it and I try, and I go, wow, that's hot, and then 10 minutes later I try to go, wow, that's hot. By the, by the end of this season, I, I'm pretty much done with horseradish. I don't want to see it no more. Like I've cried my bitter tears. You're like, I'm definitely not going back to slavery in Egypt. Yeah, yeah exactly. It'll never happen. Not in the matzah. I don't know how those guys did it for 40 years in the matzah. <laughs> now you know why my people are unhappy. <laughs> so, Rico, you may recall that after we ran that story, I sued the pickle guys for burning <laughs> my nose off my face. You should have. Um, they burned the nose off your face. Yeah, that's true. It was miserable. I had not a nostril, just one big... <laughs> Anyway, for weeks after that, I couldn't taste anything. I had to put kimchi on my cornflakes just to get any sort of flavor, you know, in my that's mouth. That's true. On the other hand, you created a new fusion food, so ah, that's fun. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Look, let's take a break. When we return, we'll hear from Anthony Bourdain and enjoy a great food story about Marlon Brando when this all-food episode of the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to our annual post-Thanksgiving all-food edition of the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, you'll hear an amazing food story involving Marlon Brando that does not involve butter. Thank God. And you will also hear one of our favorite food songs. But first, it's time for etiquette. And we've had the good fortune of seating a bunch of food world notables in our etiquette chair. Mm -hmm. uh, Gail Simmons of Top Chef has stopped by a few times. Lydia Basianich took listeners to task for bad pasta technique, mm. but it's hard to top the salty words of Mr. Anthony Bourdain. That is 100% correct. In 2000, for those who don't know about this guy, which is, seems insane to me, in 2000, his best-selling memoir, Kitchen Confidential, gave readers what was then a shocking glimpse at the difficult, dangerous, and sometimes hedonistic lives of restaurant kitchen workers. 
Bon Appetit named him Food Writer of the Year for it. He has since, of course, gone on to become a megastar of food and travel TV. He has won a Peabody and three Emmys for his CNN travel show Parts Unknown. And, oh yeah, he's a damn fine chef. When he joined us last year, his cookbook, co-written with Laurie Wooliver, had just come out. It's called Appetites. Rico kicked things off with this question. All right, here's something from Jason in Seattle. What is the best way, Jason writes, to quiet down a friend who is a loud talker during a meal, especially at a nice restaurant? Wow. <laughs> you look him right in the eyes. Dude, you are being, like, loud. Really loud. And if you don't bring it down to, like, you're a 10 now, and if you don't bring it down to a 5, I'm leaving. And then never eat with them again. You just can't have that. Cannot have that. And do you say that at what level? A 5, a 7, or a 10? (laughs) How loudly do you Uh, say that? I think a very quiet voice, except with more of, like, you know how people's eyes get in lineups? They're sort of, like, I could kill you right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, menacing. Yeah. Yeah, like, I need you to quiet right down now because we are seconds away from this meal ending. On one hand, though, I will say restaurants have become so loud themselves. It's almost like you need to to scream to be heard. Look, we could take this over to TGI Fridays or a sports bar and you could talk as loud as you want, you know, over the TV. You know, and and the high fives. All right, this next question comes all the way from New Zealand. It's from Sophie. And Sophie writes, if someone serves me challenging awful without warning at a dinner party, is it okay for me to say I would rather poke my eyes out with a pen than have one mouthful of your tripe a la mode? I mean, it's a recipe from the Middle Ages, so okay, well done, you, but I'm not bringing back the Black Death for a revamp at my next soiree. Wow, wow. Sophie. Mm. <laughs> you will die friendless and alone. <laughs> you have disrespected your host, okay? Mm, mm, Rejected yeah. uh, a beloved dish that's reflective of probably personal history. I mean, sure. that might, that tripe a la mode could be a beloved family dish. You mm-hmm. just basically spat in the milk of their mother. You've rejected, <laughs> a, a, you know, any possibility of trying something new. You've revealed yourself to be an inward looking buffoon and no one I would want to be friends with. That's the polite wow. thing to say. Yeah, I, some pretty harsh tr- <laughs> answers here, but, and plus you sound kind of like a wiseacre. You know what I'm yeah, saying? I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't, I don't, you're yeah. not coming to my party. Let's put Someone it once served me inward looking buffoon and I had the same reaction as so I turned my nose up and now I'm regretting Look, take it. Take a little bite. You know, just try a little bite. Yeah. If you don't like it, say not really to my dad is a respectable response. There also, not to be regionally incorrect here, but she's from New Zealand. Awful seems like it's kind of par for the course of yeah, the culture. Yeah, exactly. I don't know much about New Zealand cuisine. They have to import but, yeah, everything. A popular activity is uh, chasing wild boar through the uh, the hills <laughs> and, with a pack of dogs and stabbing them. I mean, literally, that's like a very popular activity there. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which I approve of. <laughs> Get right, over Sophie. it, Sophie. Get it sounds it. like here's something from Nathaniel. Nathaniel writes, "How do I discipline my in-laws' kids when they visit for the holidays? Some of them are just awful and disrespectful to their parents. Do I just let it pass and explain to my kids later that their cousins are brats?" Yeah, I think you're a target. That you can't discipline other parents' kids as much as you might like to. Yes. If they're monsters, you don't let your kids play with them. You say, yeah. look, I don't care what you think. They're, they're, they're monsters. That's a, That kid's going to grow up to be a serial killer. <laughs> oh, no. You're not playing with him anymore. But you can't. It, there's no positive outcome to telling a parent that your kids are monstrous and they need to be disciplined. That's <laughs> yeah. just, it's not your role. And parents tend to not like hearing that. Yeah, that's not a great dinner party conversation to have. Exactly. Right. You just stop inviting them All right. so All the right. kids are older. There's your advice, Nathaniel. Uh, this next question is a short one, but it's a good question. It comes from Tom in Chicago. Tom writes, when is it appropriate to send a meal back to the kitchen? Is it enough just to say, I don't like it? Uh, look, if it is not cooked the way you asked... 
if there is something wrong with it, meaning it is diverged in some way from the, what was promised, then you are completely within your rights to politely call the server over, keeping in mind that your server did not cook your food, so mm. do not please express your frustration on your server. That's like the worst thing you could ever do is like get snippy and snarky with your waiter because of something the kitchen may or may not have done. Now, if it's just not what you thought it was going to be and you don't like it, preferably you wouldn't send it back. Yeah. You realize, yeah. look, I've just made a mistake. I'm not going to order that again. But I think if you really hate it, and you send it back, you should fully expect to pay for the thing. Yeah, yeah. But more often than not, a good restaurant, they will yeah. accommodate you. I think it's permissible. And if you send it back- be nice about it. Sure, and if you send it back, I'm assuming you maybe tip a little extra for the inconvenience to them. That's always a nice thing to do. Well, yeah. is the chef shielded from the fact that you sent a dish back just because you didn't like it? Uh, no, the chef's going to hear. Okay. And he might not like it. He or she might not like to hear that. But yeah. if they're smart and they're running a good business, it's on- Look- Back in the day, I would have screamed and yelled and smashed some plates and taken it out on the waiter and made everybody in the kitchen miserable and and, and cursed all of the forces of the universe that conspired to bring me such a hateful, ignorant customer. This is why chefs die young and alcoholic. Uh, The smart thing to do would be to suck it up and send the customer something that will make them happy. That's good business, and it's probably good for everybody involved. All right. Uh, here's our last question, and kind of appropriate as we are, you know, sort of in the holiday season. This is from Ashley via Facebook, and she writes, My husband and I throw a cocktail party every December with many friends. This year, I've been asked to not invite a certain person who tends to drink too much and starts drama. I personally don't have a problem with this person, but a growing number of people disagree. Do I just not invite her and let her learn through word of mouth that the party's happening without her? Tell her straight up. Or make my friend break the news to her. Look, it's awkward, but, uh, you know, there's nothing funny about alcoholism. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you get a loud, obnoxious, drunk, ruining your party. It is understandable when you don't invite him again. Yeah, sure. Uh, but the question seems think not... about the good of the community. <laughs> how do you, appro- yeah. Yeah, how do you Look, approach it? I didn't invite you because, let's face it, you're a bad drinker. You get loud. You get belligerent. You know, and uh, you miss the bowl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You make it sound so easy. I know. And I don't know if it's because I've been watching you for years, but it's just, yeah, why don't more people just call and tell it like it is? Look, it's a friend who causes big scenes of drama at at Christmas. Yeah, not okay. Uh, Anthony Bourdain, it's been a joy having you. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. (laughs) My pleasure. Anytime. (laughs) Anthony Bourdain, who hosts Parts Unknown on CNN. On their last episode, they went to Seattle, which is kind of suspicious because we just went to Seattle Mm. to record our last live dinner party download ever. That's correct. A lot of people confuse us with Anthony. Uh, Mm -hmm. Among our guests at that live show in Seattle were New York Times columnist Lindy West and Snap Judgment host Lynn Washington. That will air next week on this very radio station and on our podcast feed. Don't miss it. And now, on this all-food episode, a history lesson. Yes, both our own history and the nation of England's. Uh, Back in 2010, I found myself in London, where the Imperial War Museum was hosting an exhibit called The Ministry of Food. Which was not about people who worship food. No, I I think that's called the State Fair. Mm -hmm. This was about Britain's food culture during World War II when the island nation had to ration food for years. And in addition to displaying ration books and food-related propaganda, they served dishes at the museum cafe that were made using wartime recipes. 
So I met up with the museum's Katie Fluster, and she started off by telling me a few ingredients that were in short supply back then. Butter was rationed and fats. So there goes all good food right there. How do you cook? <laughs> People would use other items such as margarine. Butter and dairy were the first things to be rationed. So people would mix margarine with sugar and that would create a cream-like mixture that they would use on cakes. So you're serving this food that is based on whatever was available at the time. Is it actually tasty? It is very tasty and we've taken our own take. Some of the recipes we've looked at and we've had to not go ahead with, we've had plenty of trials um, and thought, well, fantastic, it is an original recipe, a lovely story behind, uh, but no, we can't serve that. <laughs> like what? Um, wheat was in short supply towards the end of the war, and the recipe for biscuits, for example, people would have substituted mashed potato. And we did actually make some potato biscuits. <laughs> and it didn't work out? I mean, I'm thinking of gnocchi, that was tasty. Um, yeah, but not quite the same, no. <laughs> the lack of sweetness, the lack of sugar, because obviously sugar was rationed as well, didn't quite make them palatable enough. So are you using anything with sugar? I mean, is there any? did you take any liberties with these recipes? We've had to take some liberties, yes. Um, and we are using some sugar. People would have had a couple of ounces per adult per week. So minimal amounts, but people were getting some. Uh, War is hell. <laughs> All right, we are standing in the actual cafe called The Kitchen Front, and uh, I'm going to try some of this stuff. What are we looking at? A corned beef sandwich, which is made with piccalilli. And what, is, what is piccalilli? Cauliflower, tomatoes, onions, and they're pickled with a mustard. Oh, actually, that mm. sounds kind of awesome. You should bottle that. <laughs> People did. Pickled vegetables, pickled onions, pickled eggs would have been a way of making what you had last. And it's, and it's served on a bread called a national loaf, which I can tell you doesn't sound immediately appealing to me. No, the national loaf was a bread using the whole grain of the flour. So again, sending a message of not wasting. So all of the bread after about 1943 would have been brown. You wouldn't have seen white bread. But it is very tasty. Mmm. I actually really like it. And yet it doesn't make me long for war or anything. So it's good, but it's not that good. Katie Fluster of London's Imperial War Museum talking about their 2010 exhibit, The Ministry of Food. They also published a book of the same name with recipes, Should You Have a Yen for Doing Some Peacetime Rationing at Home. All right, and now from not enough food to a feast of cinematic proportions. Actress Ileana Douglas has starred in films like To Die For and Cape Fear, but she also talks about films in specials on Turner Classic Movies. Her book I Blame Dennis Hopper is half memoir, half love letter to the movies. For this all-food episode of the Dinner Party Download, here's her tale of one of the most epic meals ever. Hi, my name is Ileana Douglas, and this is a story about me getting to meet one of my idols, Everybody asks you, who did you most want to meet in your life? And I say, oh, I met him. So I was doing a movie called Wedding Bell Blues, very low-budget movie in L.A., and I was in a relationship with Martin Scorsese, and he was uh, coming out to Hollywood to win a humanitarian award, John Huston Award. I went to meet Marty at the Beverly Wilshire, and he surprised me by saying... Guess who we're going to meet tomorrow? Marlon Brando's coming over for lunch. I just thought, no, 
and everything that I want to be as an actor is because of Marlon Brando. I had posters of him on my wall. We studied him in acting school. There's no way I can meet Marlon Brando. I can't meet him. Marty assured me, you'll be fine. And then we proceeded to go to this award show, and I brought my autograph book. Now, they were hustling Marty out of there after the awards, and in the hubbub, I left my precious book on the table. When I went back for it, it was gone, and I was devastated. It comes to the morning. I'm really incredibly nervous, and the door opens, and there's Marlon Brando. His eyes were this deep sapphire blue, a color I'd never seen before, which was arresting enough. But astonishingly, they matched the color of the blue velour sweatsuit that he was wearing. And I thought, Marlon Brando is wearing a blue velour sweatsuit? Who made that for him? Who owns that much velour? He said very quietly to Marty, how do I look? And Marty said, you'd look fantastic, Marlon. Marty was always a better actor than I was. So he comes in. And that's when I heard Marlon Brando say, stop everything, look at your feet. And we all looked down at my feet, which were inverted towards each other and kind of pigeon-toed. And he said, that's a sign of insecurity. Why should you be insecure? And suddenly, tears were streaming down my face. And Marty started to laugh, like, really nervously, like, oh, she's a very emotional kid. He kind of put his arm around me, like, you know, hey, pull yourself together in front of Marlon Brando. And he said, my dear girl, what is it? And there was this rumbling inside of my core, and I couldn't stop myself. And I said, I'm sorry, but... This is really emotional for me. I mean, you're Marlon Brando, and everything I do or want to do or be is because of you. And I guess I am insecure. Suddenly, Brando's eyes were locked with mine, and he said, my God, you're a tuning fork. Now I'm crying. And Marty comes running in with a Kleenex, and then now he starts to explain how I lost my autograph book, and it was all his fault, and he feels so bad. And now Marty starts to cry. And all of a sudden, you know, Brandon says, let's order lunch up here. You know, I always like to say, Marty and I ordered the regular menu and uh, Brando the Henry VIII menu because it was, you know, shrimp cocktail, pasta, lots of wine, burgers, fries, ice cream, cookies, more wine. It was a Bacchanalian feast. And of course, the afternoon (laughs) turned into night. We talked about his relationships with women and his island, of course. And another crazy scheme he had of collecting uh, electricity from electric eels in his pool. I mean, we were under the spell. It was just an incredible lesson to be yourself and to be taught that by the world's greatest actor is something that I've never forgotten. So Marty goes back to New York, and I get a call from his assistant saying that Marlon Brando has asked for my address. I got back to my hotel, and there was the largest bushel 
of roses I'd ever seen in my life. There must have been over a hundred roses from Marlon Brando and an invitation to have lunch with him at his house. And of course, I was immediately going to do that because I thought, wow, this is going to be amazing. You know, I'll get to see these electric eels. But the assistant um, who worked for Marty said, there's just no way you can do this. It means he wants to have sex with you. And of course, I was like, no. But that kind of got in my head. And I reluctantly turned down the invitation to go have lunch. That is my biggest show business regret. I'm sorry, Marlon Brando. I'm really sorry. Ileana Douglas, that piece was adapted from her book, I Blame Dennis Hopper. And that concludes this, our annual post-Thanksgiving all-food episode of the Dinner Party Download. Next week, if you can believe it, we're airing our final new show. Uh, We taped it live on stage just a few days ago in beautiful Seattle, Washington, which may or may not have erupted into anarchy when we mentioned the Seahawks. Oh my God, football is a powerful and frightening thing, it turns out. You'll also hear conversations with our special guests, Lindy West of the New York Times and Glenn Washington, host of Snap Judgment, plus new music from Kyle Kraft. Don't miss it. It's excellent. And folks, if the prospect of a DPD-less world is bumming out your Thanksgiving weekend, fear not. We have the perfect antidote. Just head over to your favorite bookstore or online bookseller and pre-order our book, Brunch is Hell, How to Save the World by Throwing a Dinner Party. It comes out December 5th. And while you go do that, let us tell you our production staff includes senior producer Jackson Musker, associate producer Krista Ripple, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, intern Emerald Douglas, and engineer Ben Tolliday. And now, before we leave you, Here's One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Electronic pop outfit Sylvan Esso has been one of our favorite acts over the course of the show. Earlier this year, they put out the album What Now? But here's a track that's been stuck in our brains for a while called Coffee, because who can resist ending a dinner party and food show with a great pun? And with a great song. Bon appétit. Two. It's a dance we know the most. Bow the dip the wood Though the words are true The state is old news Wrapped in your arms I can't feel it burned Wrap me in your arms I can't feel it burned I'm Brendan. I'm Rico, and thanks for listening to the Dinner Party Download. Whoa! Look, Anthony Bourdain left a magic eight ball behind. What? Cool. All right, let's see what our future holds. You will die friendless and alone. Same thing the Marcy eight ball said. Weird.